Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting July 31st, 2015, we consider the contentious Iran nuclear deal in a special conversation with Gary Sick, former White House National Security Council expert on Iran now executive director of the Gulf 2000 Project at Columbia University. The United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Our concern, of course, is that the militant Islamic State of Iran um, is going to receive uh, a sure path to nuclear weapons. Many of the restrictions that were supposed to prevent it from getting there will be lifted. And in addition, Iran will get a jackpot, of a cash bonanza of hundreds of billions of dollars, which will enable it to continue to pursue its aggression and terror in the region. Whether the Iran nuclear deal is an historic triumph for diplomacy, as President Obama has boasted, or a prelude to historic tragedy, as Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu has warned, will take years to become fully clear. And perhaps that's the point. The deal at least puts off both the threat of a nuclear-armed Iran and the widespread devastation and destabilization likely from a war some see as more sure to prevent that threat. Meanwhile, the pros and cons are being argued passionately and politically around the world, nowhere more than in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. presidential campaign. Few have focused more closely on the geopolitical dynamics behind the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action on Iran, or JCPOA, and its emerging details than Gary Sick. Key White House aide on Persian Gulf affairs for President Carter, Sick is now executive director of the Gulf 2000 Project at Columbia University and adjunct professor at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. We talked about the deal at midweek for this podcast. Professor Sick, welcome to World Policy on Air. David, it's a real pleasure to be with you again. We may not know for sure how the deal will eventually play out, but you've written that no crystal ball is needed to know the outcome if it's rejected. Remind us of what happened the first time Iran came to the table over its nuclear program starting in 2003. Uh, in 2003 to 2005, the Europeans uh, negotiated with Iran, and then the Europeans negotiated with the United States. Uh, so they would talk to Iran, and then they would check their position with the United States. Uh, during that period of time, an offer was made to Iran, which would, they said to them, stop all enrichment and uh, cease everything at that point, and we'll do all sorts of good things for you. We will, we will make an offer of uh, normal relations, uh, bring you back into the international community, take away sanctions, and so forth. Uh, at that point, Iran had about 164 centrifuges running, or at least planned. They were starting a very early stage uh, enrichment program. Uh, Iran turned that down. They said, we don't want to be treated differently than any other country in the world that signs the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and we insist on having our own nuclear, peaceful nuclear program, and that includes enrichment, the full nuclear fuel cycle. The United States and the, Europe, and the Europeans said no to that, and in the subsequent years, 
Iran went from 164 centrifuges to 19,000. Uh, they went from zero enriched uranium to about where we are now, maybe seven tons of enriched uranium at 20% enriched uranium, uh, which is enough for, say, seven or eight nuclear weapons, and uh, started building a plutonium reactor that would give them the capacity for more uh, uh, different route to a nuclear weapon. They opened a large site for uh, centrifuge enrichment and a secret site under under a mountain, a highly protected site, uh, which clearly was intended to protect them in case they were bombed. Um, all of that happened with increased sanctions going on, uh, absolute refusal to accept Iran's position, and insisting on zero enrichment. Uh, that's where we were. Uh, when basically uh, uh, President Obama took office. And so, in effect, we've been around that track. We've seen what it looks like when we say, no, you can't, we refuse to accept any centrifuge turning. Well, we got 19,000 centrifuges out of that. So that is sort of where we were coming from. And you'll recall a few years ago, uh, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu standing up before the UN with a picture of a bomb uh, filling up with 20% enriched uranium. Uh, that was 20% enriched uranium that was created during that uh, time period. So uh, this deal was intended to stop that process and and set back and push Iran's nuclear program back. So that's the that's sort of the, the long term structure of it. Uh, Iran has shown that they their pride is worth something, even though they were coming under tremendous pressure by uh, the world. Uh, in terms of sanctions on their economy, their oil, and so forth, uh, they were prepared to accept that, uh, to insist on the principle that they would have a uh, peaceful nuclear program. Even the, per the, performance of, the performance of Netanyahu with that picture of the bomb was not the first time he warned how close Iran was to actually producing a bomb, and yet you note that with all of that capability, there have been few signs that they really had the will, the political, made the political decision to do it. Talk about that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, in fact, you can you can calculate different ways, but um, Prime Minister Netanyahu first warned that Iran was three to five years away from having a nuclear weapon back in 1992 when he was a member of the Knesset and he spoke uh, to, the, to the Knesset and warned that if nobody intervened, Iran would have a bomb in three to five years. Well, that was, of course, in 1992. Uh, and he has continued, and many others have continued, to warn that Iran would have a bomb in X number of years, five years, six years, three years, two years, and so forth. By the time we got to... Uh, 2013, when we actually started these negotiations, uh, Iran had the capacity to build like five to seven, maybe even ten nuclear weapons. They had the, the they had the material necessary to do that. And the interesting thing is, and everybody agrees on this, the, the Israeli intelligence, American intelligence, that Iran didn't do it. They did not build a nuclear weapon, even though they had the capacity. We talk now about breakout time, the amount of time it would take Iran to uh, create a, enough material for a nuclear weapon. Uh, 
basically Iran is there right now. I mean, they've had that capacity for five to ten years and have not used it. So it is an anomaly that you know the rest of the world is convinced that Iran is absolutely determined to get a nuclear weapon. The Iranians keep saying, we don't want a nuclear weapon. We, we are determined to have a peaceful nuclear program that maintains our dignity and that we're not treated like any we're not treated like a pariah state but we don't want a nuclear weapon we're prepared to say so publicly and the the joint uh, the 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 joint agreement does in fact say right up front that Iran agrees that it will never build a nuclear weapon so uh, we have this disconnect so that a lot of the critics of Iran are saying, well, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. They'll run with this 10 years from now, 15 years from now. They'll go right back and build a nuclear weapon immediately. 15 years from now, they will be right where they are today. And so you have to ask, if they've already gotten to that point, why didn't they do it? And, you know, people can have different uh, reasons for that, but one possible reason is that they really do not want a nuclear weapon. They would like to, everybody to know that they have the capacity to build a nuclear weapon, but they don't, in fact, do it unless they, they, they've said they're not going to do it, uh, I think, unless they're really put under a threat by a nuclear power. What do you see Tehran doing if the deal is somehow blocked by Congress now or by the next U.S. president? Could international sanctions be escalated or even maintained? What's the worst-case scenario? Oh, I think the worst-case scenario is that, um, one, the United States really loses all credibility. When you have a president and a secretary of state that put in uh, two years of intense negotiation, work out an agreement that is one of the most elaborate and the most complex and one of the most complete uh, agreements on nonproliferation in the history of, of the nuclear world, um, and then the U.S. Congress says, no, or the next president says, no, we're, that's not good enough. We're not going to accept that, and we're going to walk away from that agreement. Uh, what does that say about American credibility in any future negotiation that we might be involved in? So that's one part of it. The other part is this was not just a U.S.-Iran negotiation. There are all five permanent members of the Security Council. That includes Russia, China, the Europeans, and so forth, all involved in this negotiation. They have all signed off on it. And if the United States, because of the U.S. Congress, walks away from it, if they, if they believe that the rest of the world is going to follow them after all of it has gone into this negotiation, I think they're really severely misled, uh, that basically the rest of the world has no reason to maintain the kind of the, the sanctions that America might like to have just on the grounds that we have 535 secretaries of state uh, operating in the U.S. Congress who are trying to dictate American policy. So this is a, th th there's a high cost associated with this, and it's hard to believe that the rest of the world would go along with the U.S. Congress and basically follow its lead. More than not wanting to follow Congress, uh, these countries have uh, personal financial economic interests in uh, restoring normal relations with Iran. These countries impose sanctions on Iran really over the over the objections of their own uh, their own business communities, uh, many of these countries had far more uh, active trade and development with Iran 
than the United States did. We cut ours off 35 years ago at the time of the Iranian Revolution and the hostage crisis. These other countries had been trading with Iran. And although Iran is not the world's biggest economy, it's basically its, uh, its gross national product is about the size of the state of Georgia. I mean, we're not talking about a behemoth here. On the other hand, it's a very 80 million people who for years have been starved uh, for uh, consumer goods at a reasonable price and for foreign development uh, coming into their country. So there's a real appetite there. So a lot of companies are going to see an opportunity. That includes India, for instance, China, Russia, certainly, but the Europeans as well, who have a long trading relationship with Iran. So they're going to uh, want to give their companies a little bit of relief. And basically the fact that the U.S. Congress doesn't agree is probably not going to cut any ice with them. So I think we would see the sanctions begin to fall apart regardless of uh, what people in Congress may believe. President Obama says uh, some of the deal's most outspoken critics are the same folks who pulled the U.S. into wars both costly and inconclusive in Afghanistan and Iraq. How do you see an attack on Iran now playing out in the region and beyond? Well, uh, you know, the reality is that if you look at uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech to the U.N. with that cartoon bomb, he had a red line at the top. And what that red line meant, as far as anybody could figure out, was that when Iran got to that point, they were so close to having the capability of producing a bomb that the only thing that we could do was to attack them, to stop them from doing that. Now that cartoon bomb has been drained. Uh, If this deal goes through and if Iran keeps its part of the bargain, which it has every incentive to do, uh, and which they've agreed to do, that bomb is empty and is not there. But the reality is that, and, and pretty much everybody, including very senior members of the security establishment in Israel, agree that bombing Iran may be the worst of all possible uh, choices, because if Iran is bombed, it has no incentive to go ahead and behave well. It says, look, we tried our best. We negotiated with you guys for years. We offered you all sorts of uh, trade-offs here. And what do we get for that? The American Congress doesn't like what we did, and so they put us back to where we were before with the threat of bombing. And you bomb us, and you're not going to make us forget how to make operate a centrifuge. Basically, the Iranians could say, we'll go underground, we'll kick out the IAEA inspectors, of whom there are at least 100, who are, Iran is the most inspected country in the world. Um, kick those people out, then we won't know. We'll be deaf, dumb, and blind, and we won't know what Iran is doing. And a lot of people will assume that Iran, then having been hit, will go for a bomb. At that point, you really don't have any choice but to use military force. So the, 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 op, the possibility of an attack on Iran is real, and the chance that this would, in fact, end up with making Iran build a bomb is one of the real one of the things that most of the people who are in favor of bombing really tend to forget. They say, oh, it's a two- or three-day operation, no big deal, we can, do in, we can go in there, we can destroy their military capability, we can destroy their nuclear capability. But in reality, Iran, the real Iran's nuclear capability is their, the 
their people and the experience that they've gained over these years, and then turning it to use to actually make a bomb instead of just using it for uh, creating enriched uranium that could be used for a peaceful nuclear program. So it's a it's a no win proposition uh, to reject the deal as good as this, put ourselves back in the position of basically going for war. There are a few people, and I, for instance, John Bolton, the former uh, uh, ambassador to the UN, openly says it's too late. Uh, we've gone past it. Nothing will work at this point except bombing them. There are several other people who have written, uh, quite serious people. As it turns out, those people were all the ones who were proposing that we bomb uh, and overthrow Saddam Hussein, that the invasion of Iran would be easy, it would only take a couple of weeks, uh, it would pay for itself, etc. And we know how that went. They are saying exactly the same thing about Iran, with even less reason to justify it. So it is, uh, you know, it, it's a very risky thing. To, I, mean, I, I really think that the people who are proposing this are being truly irresponsible in terms of the better, you know, the long-term interests of the United States. There's no way that the long-term interests of the United States would be served by a bombing campaign against Iran. Let's talk about the weak points of the deal, or those most questioned, uh, beginning with the 24-day period between the request right. for some critical inspections and actually getting experts from the IAEA into those sites. Could all traces of prohibited nuclear activity be removed in that time? Well, I'm not a nuclear physicist, and uh, I don't pretend to know the ins and outs, but there are some people involved in this who are. I mean, Ernie Moniz, the Secretary of Energy, uh, is a one of the most highly respected nuclear physicists in the world and a professor at MIT. He does know what he's talking about. And the people who were involved in negotiating this deal were the people from our national labs, uh, whether it's Brookhaven here or Oak Ridge or the, the nuclear laboratories that are U.S. nuclear labs that are located around the, the country. They were involved directly in negotiating this. And they say, and Secretary Moniz made this statement to the Congress the other day, that there's no way that you can remove all traces of nuclear activity within 24 days. That even if you go to extreme efforts to try to do so, the half-life of a uh, of nuclear radiation the, the little elements that are created and which spray out uh, inevitably and can't be contained, uh, they last for sometimes a billion years, the half-life. So going, trying to do that, again, you have to come back to the question, and you know, starting with the fact that the breakout time, the time that it would take to get enough material for a one nuclear weapon will be a whole year, that you put that in the context of 24 days maximum from the time that an issue arises until uh, Iran can come under new sanctions again, there's really no way that they can protect themselves and no way that they can hide it. And I think with the kind of scientific capability um, that we have now, and again, I'm, I'm quoting people uh, who are 
are, in fact, nuclear inspectors who have been in the job of doing this. They say our access, our ability to, to make those judgments today scientifically are just infinitely greater than they were in the past. And it is uh, it's just a fact of life. And Iran knows that. So if Iran really wanted to build a nuclear weapon, you really have to ask why they would put themselves in a position where anything that they did was subject to physical intrusion within 24 days. I mean, that is just asking for trouble. And basically, that would be proof that Iran has not met its requirements, and the whole the whole thing would fall apart. So whatever good things Iran gets out of this would come to an end instantly. And, you know, it's hard for me to understand why they would put that burden on themselves and then try to do it. Uh, in fact, the IAEA Washington, Israel might even gain some tactical or strategic intelligence just from noting where inspections are most delayed or, or blocked entirely. Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, basically, uh, if Iran really wanted to build a nuclear weapon, it shouldn't have done this. It shouldn't have gone into these negotiations. It shouldn't have made the agreements that it made. It shouldn't have opened itself up the way it's opening itself up to inspection and examination. They have made they have opened up their entire nuclear fuel cycle from the mining of uranium, the actual construction of centrifuges, that whole system, all the mining and transmittal and production of nuclear fissile material, that whole system is open to inspection at all points along the way. If they really wanted to build a bomb, why would they do that? Why would they have inspectors there doing that when they didn't before? That's all new. Those are things that we didn't have available to us before the agreement that we now have available. It's very difficult for me to see what what their thinking would be to try to gain. And the idea that Iran is sort of, they're completely untrustworthy. Well, they are—they may be untrustworthy, but they're not stupid. And they know perfectly well from the people that they were talking to in these negotiations that we're not going to be fooled by that. To what degree do you see the end of sanctions clearing the way for cooperation between Washington and Iran on problems of mutual interest, especially the spread of Islamic State regionally and its international appeal via mass media and the Internet? Iran, in fact, was helpful in the early days of uh, U.S. operations in Afghanistan. Yeah, um, the United States and Iran have a number of areas where our interests are very similar. Afghanistan is one of them. ISIS uh, is another example. But we have other places where we disagree very vigorously about uh, our foreign policies on either side. Um, David, my guess is that for at least the next uh, six months, maybe a year, maybe even two years, both the United States and Iran, as a way of selling this agreement to their own hardliners at home, will have to maintain a very tough position. They're going to have to say, we don't trust these people. We're looking at everything in great detail. We're not going to cooperate with them. Anybody who thinks that we're going to just fall apart and, and, and work with each other is wrong. So uh, Iran will keep chanting death to America at its Friday meetings. Uh, you know, The U.S. Congress will say Iran is cheating on this. You better check this out. There will be uh, all kinds of newspaper articles to that effect. So I don't expect a sort of period of good feelings 
uh, for the next uh, year or two. I just think that uh, the, the, the rancor is so high that people are probably going to uh, make make it look even worse than it than it really is. That being said, I do think there is a real possibility that Iran will begin to take a seat at the table on some of these negotiations. For instance, the Syrian issue, you know, you may detest Iran's position that basically is in support of, of, of Assad, or at least preventing the overthrow of the Assad regime without assurances of what comes afterwards. That may, that may be something that, the America, that America doesn't like at all. But if you really want to resolve the, the, the Syrian issue, it helps to, in fact, have Iran there participating in the discussions. So even if you don't like them, even if you think that, that their policies are wrong, you can simply sit back and say, no, we won't talk to you at all, or you say, no, we'll bring you in, and uh, you're going to have to participate as a constructive player in this whole operation. If you really want to get from here to there, that's the sort of thing you need. So I can imagine that becoming more common uh, in, the, uh, in the years to come, that uh, basically if Iran does, as I fully anticipate they will, because they've been at this a long time, if they actually fulfill their end of the bargain, and we've got now two years of experience with the previous agreement, which they have been meticulous in uh, actually fulfilling their part, if that is, if they continue to do that, and that's where they stay, then I think we're in, we're gradually going to get used to the idea that maybe Although we don't want to trust Iran, it's a country that we can work with. We negotiated with them. They made they made certain assurances, made certain they accepted certain requirements, and they're now fulfilling those requirements. Uh, that is bound to create a little bit of uh, change in our relationship. Otherwise, I think it just takes time for everybody to get used to the idea that we've moved on into a new era. And that uh, that's going to be very hard for, for some people, and for some people I think it will probably be impossible. And what sort of political changes within Iran is it realistic to expect over 10 years of increasing economic and cultural integration with the West uh, once the sanctions are lifted? Well, there are various ways of looking at this. and. Uh, you know, we really, truly do not have any idea. What, well, I can't predict what's going to happen in the United States in the next 10 years. <laughs> we could have, we could be on our third different president, technically, by the 10 or 15 years that this uh, could run. If uh, we had a, a president and then a second president, we could be on our third president by the time this thing gets to the 15-year point. Um, and so... I can't predict that here. I certainly can't predict it for Iran. I do believe that Iran made a very calculated decision in all of this. They have accepted restrictions on their operations that are greater than any other country in the world. And they wouldn't do that unless they thought it was to their benefit. I think the way they feel about it is that they recognize that the Iranian people were losing faith in them, in their leadership, that basically they had not managed the economy well, they had not managed their foreign policy very well, 
the country was not doing well. A very, very large proportion of their young people were unemployed, and they wanted to end that situation. It was one that was not healthy for them and for the system because they believe in keeping the uh, Islamic Republic system, uh, even if that means some kind of evolution. And I think that's what we're seeing in Iran. What keeps the prospect of a nuclear-armed Iran in 10 years uh, from sparking a nuclear arms race in the Middle East? Meanwhile, which then pushes Tehran to go all the way as well when it's no longer constrained, a sort of deadly self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, the, um, the the business about arms races in the Middle East have been around for a long time. Um, when you know Israel has nuclear weapons, uh, they don't say so officially, but everybody knows they do, um, and they have been the worst enemy of the Arabs uh, since they were created in the 1940s. Um, they that should have sparked a nuclear arms race because how do you protect yourself against a nuclear armed enemy and one that actually has nuclear weapons, not one that's just talking about it or who might under some circumstances. It has not. And I think that's an indicator of, I mean, now Israel and the Arabs are finding things in common with each other. Uh, but if if during that entire period of tremendous anxiety and disagreement between the Arabs and Israel did not spark a nuclear arms race. It's difficult to understand why uh, an Iran, which is only theoretically capable of building a nuclear weapon and which is under very, very tight inspections, why the countries like Saudi Arabia or the UAE or others would find it in their interest to take a series of steps that almost certainly would involve serious differences of view with the United States. I mean, if Saudi Arabia set out to build a nuclear weapon, the United States would not just sit quietly and say, oh, well, go ahead uh, and do it. Uh, There would be real costs to, to Saudi Arabia and to us of that, and those costs probably would would result in no, nothing good. By the, time, by the end of the day, Saudi Arabia probably would not have much of a nuclear capability, um, and it would have paid a very high price for it. What they will do is come to us, and they're coming uh, in droves right now, saying we want to build, we want to, we want anti-missile equipment, uh, we want uh, uh, all kinds of technical capability, high-tech capability to protect ourselves against Iran if, in fact, that situation should arise. And the United States is more than happy to sell them that military equipment. Uh, We're talking tens of billions of dollars over the next few years. And uh, that is a very likely thing to happen. For them to actually go and get a nuclear weapon, the UAE has already signed an agreement saying that it will not ever use its capability, its building nuclear power plants. It will not use that capability to uh, create a nuclear weapon. Iran is making the same promise. So basically, I think that that is, you can't prove that and you can't disprove it, but just looking at the history of the Middle East, it's hard to see how that, uh, why they would in fact go for a nuclear weapon at this time when in fact their threat of a nuclear attack is far less than it was just two years ago.
Well, and in fact, they're asking for the kind of conventional weapons uh, that uh, would not be terribly useful against a nuclear Iran, but uh, certainly seem to be relevant to an Iran which has a much bigger economy after sanctions are lifted and a continual conventional interference in Middle East affairs. That's right. Uh, it's, it's also, however, really worth keeping in mind that the Gulf states spend five to seven times as much for defense purposes as Iran does. Iran has a very small uh, defense budget, and certainly compared to Saudi Arabia, which is, has almost five times as much of a budget, with uh, they outman, they don't outman Iran. Iran has people, but they have better, uh, much more capable air forces, missile defense systems, and uh, other technical capabilities to stand against Iran than, uh, than, than Iran does. Iran has almost no capacity to uh, actually uh, extend, its extend its conventional military capability outside its own borders. Uh, most of its forces are really good for internal use. They have some cases where they cooperate, for instance, with the Iraqi army uh, to provide some training. They've, they've provided assistance and training people to uh, Assad in, in uh, Syria. But they don't have real power projection. They don't have long-range bombers. They don't have uh, they don't have capabilities to move large numbers of troops over large distances, uh, and they don't have much of an air force today. It's really uh, it's worn out uh, and has been for many years because it's been under sanctions. So the the Arab states are actually in a position to to protect themselves if that if that becomes uh, becomes necessary. Plus, they have a close relationship with the United States, and that really counts for something. I mean, we're talking now about the fact that people are worried in, in the Middle East that the United States, uh, because of this deal, will suddenly embrace Iran as uh, as the way we did under the Shah, and that would uh, and we'll reject all of our Arab allies. Uh, that's just nonsense. I mean, it really flies in the face of all of our experience, and the people who are saying that just do not understand the depth of the relationship that the United States has with these countries uh, in the region. They clearly are upset by the fact that we're dealing with Iran at all. They like the good old days when we basically kept Iran in a box. We did all of that for them, and they liked that. I mean, who wouldn't? They were free riders on this system. And the fact that we are now willing to engage with Iran in a productive way uh, makes them nervous. But in terms of actual threat to them physically, in terms of an invasion or some kind of an attack, uh, Iran is just not in a position to do that, and, and probably will not be for the foreseeable future. And in provoking uh, militancy, extremism, terrorism in the region? Um, that's a problem that we're going to have to work on. That basically, we disagree with Iran. We disagree with it about its policies regarding Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, Assad. Those are issues that we care about a great deal, and certainly Israel cares about a great deal. And those are things which remain to be resolved. They are not resolved by this agreement. This agreement does not touch any of that. And the only thing one can say is... Uh, 
would you rather have an Iran conducting these activities uh, with a very near nuclear capability or not? Uh, basically, by moving their capability out, even their latent capability out, to 15 or more years, and even then they have very severe restrictions, but moving them out that far gives us that window of opportunity, which then if, if we're willing and they're willing to build on this relationship, which as I say, it's going to be hard because of the, the hardliners on both sides, but if we have that window of opportunity, uh, basically a generation, to begin to build some kind of different relationship. Uh, I'm not willing to predict that it's all going to be sweetness and light. I really don't believe that it is. I do think, however, that we'll be in a better position to have that discussion with Iran after this, after this deal goes into effect than it would be if there were no agreement at all and we were back to where we were uh, two years ago. Professor Sick, thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Gary Sick was a key White House aide on Persian Gulf affairs in the Carter administration, now executive director of the Gulf 2000 Project at Columbia University and adjunct professor at Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs. We spoke at midweek for this podcast from World Policy Journal. Featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, cover headline Climate's Cliff, you'll find articles on developing solar, wind, and nuclear power, about threats to the environment from Nicaragua to the Arctic, and about answers from six continents to the issue's big question, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk with Shanghai-born novelist Chu Shaolong about his short story on the pollution, corruption, and politics behind China's smothering skies, the first fiction ever published by World Policy Journal in its new Climate's Cliff 2015 summer issue. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.